minutes. And so today we are going to talk about our work lives and rest and what it looks like to, to take hold of that life that's truly life in our work lives. Um, I want you to imagine with me for a moment before we kind of jump into uh, uh, some of the biblical text. Imagine with me you're waiting for a train on like a, a platform, okay? You're just going about your life. You're waiting for a train somewhere. Let's assume we live in a city that has subways because that looks like a subway to me. You're waiting for a subway and uh, you're just standing there and, and uh, a man who you don't know walks right up to you and says with conviction, the word hippopotamus means river horse and just says it to you as if this means something to you. I think we would all be a little bit thrown off <laughs> if that happened. Um, the sentence itself kind of makes sense, okay? The word hippopotamus means river horse. It actually does, by the way. Okay, that's not a nonsensical sentence, but it's nonsensical that this person would walk up to you and say that at this moment. It's like, why is this happening? Um, in order to make sense of that, there would need to be a story that explains why this individual is walking up and saying this strange phrase to you. Maybe the story is mistaken identity. Maybe on the previous day he's riding the subway and he's a zoologist and he sat next to somebody who uh, he talked to about animals and names of animals and things like that and he couldn't remember the name of a hippopotamus or something and he forgot his glasses that day and he's walking up to the subway and he thinks you're that person he talked to the day before. Well, that would kind of make sense of it. Or maybe he's a spy, and this is like a code phrase. He's walking up to you. That's like the phrase, and he thinks you're a spy too. We would have to find some story that makes sense of this bizarre interaction. Of course, this is what detectives do, what journalists do. They they observe things going on. They're trying to make sense of it, and they're trying to discover a story that explains, you know, what they're uh, investigating. And in a way, I think... um, this principle applies to how we view our work lives. Um, our work lives don't make sense to us outside of a story that explains our work lives. Uh, we misunderstand what work is. Uh, it, it becomes nonsensical to us. We cannot understand work and we can't understand rest outside the context of a story, the story the biblical narrative. And so I want to look at our work lives and rest through the lens of the overarching biblical narrative today, which could be summarized in these three words, creation, fall, and restoration. And it's in that narrative that if we place our work, it will make sense to us. It will begin to have some focus and some clarity. Um, now, often in here, what we do on Sundays is we kind of work through a, a biblical passage in, in detail, and we'll highlight things. Today, um, we're going to be talking a little bit more 30,000 foot of, of the overarching story of the Bible, so we're going to jump around a little bit. So I'm not going to have you open up to one passage of the Bible. We'll have uh, the various scriptures up here, but if you want to take notes, you can just write down you know, the references of the passages that I think are going to give us some clarity on this point. So let's start with the first chapter of this story, creation. At the beginning in Genesis 1, we, we read the creation account. God makes you know, the heavens and the earth, and it says in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And so God is creating the universe, and when he completes this creative work, he calls it good. Uh, and so we're just meeting God, by the way. If you don't know God, and you're just sort of starting the Bible, and you're, you know, who is this, this deity um, we're finding out very early in the process of discovering who God is that, that there is work because God did this work and that the work was a good thing. 
the creative work that he did. And you keep reading Genesis and you find that we are made in God's image. We are made, we are fashioned to resemble him and that our work life is part of our resemblance to God. Um, Before sin came into the world, when everything is perfect, everything is the way God wants it. There's no pain, there's no frustration, there's no confusion. When everything is exactly how God designed it, he gave us work to do. Look at Genesis 2.15. You keep reading this creation account. He creates Adam. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Shortly after, Eve is created as a partner so they can enjoy creation together and work together. And this tells us that God considers work to be a gift, to be experienced, and to be enjoyed. And and this part of the story should shape our understanding of how we view work. We were created to work, and we resemble God in that way because He worked. So if we embrace this, it means that work is not a temporary annoyance to get through. It's not like a barrier to the good life that we're trying to escape. Our work life is part of our design. It's, what it, it, it's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to reflect our creator. So the creation account shapes our view of work. Work is a gift from God. It is good. It is part of who we are. It is fundamental to us. So that's what we get in the first chapter of that story that's going to make sense of our work life. The second chapter brings even more clarity into our experience of work, and this is the fall. And by that I mean when sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and opened the floodgates of sin, which now pollutes everything. And we live in a a world uh, where sin is part of our experience. And through sinful eyes, uh, when we look at our work and amplified by a very individualistic Western culture, our view of God, our view of ourselves, and our view of our work has become distorted. It has departed from God's perfect creation of it at the beginning. So how has our view of ourselves and work been distorted? I want to give you a a few examples of this. Uh, The first is that we idolize our work. We idolize it. We place it on this high pedestal. Most of our aspirations in life orbit around what our work is or what we hope it would be. You know, we want to be the best we can be. It's all about, you know, self-actualization. You can be anything you want. Find fulfillment in that job that's perfectly suited to you and your passions and interests. We expect our work to tell us who we are, to give us a sense of identity, a sense of worth, a sense of value. And when we place that burden on our work, which we're not meant to do, the result is when we do well, if, if we go through a season of life where we're doing well professionally and, and financially, it goes to our heads and we become arrogant. And what I mean by arrogant is we behave as if we don't need God. Or if we're struggling, on the other hand, professionally, struggling financially, it goes to our heart and we, we feel worthless or we struggle to feel like we're of value. We think God is overlooking us. This is what it means to idolize our work. It's a distortion from how God created work for us and the gift that it was meant to be. So that's one, one way that we've distorted our idea of work. Another way is this, is that we value some types of work over others. We want to be well-paid, highly visible, difference makers, have a job that's perfectly tailored to us, 
And in the process, I believe, and I'm guilty of this, we forget that God does dramatic and very important things through seemingly ordinary and behind-the-scenes work. I mean, think of the farmers who produce you know, food for millions of people that you'll never see. The truck drivers who deliver the food where it needs to go. Laborers who build homes. Sanitation workers who literally deal with our trash. I mean, you better believe God values their work and uses it for his kingdom purposes. These are some of God's mechanisms for feeding the world, providing shelter, preventing disease. How dare we look down on that? In our sinfulness, we devalue work. Our own work, the work of others that's not visible or celebrated or aligned with our interests. We don't see work the way God does. Here's another way that we have distorted our view of work is we take work for granted. This is kind of a curious thing because I think on the one hand we idolize it. It's too important. We, we expect it to tell us who we are and give us value. But on the other hand, we take it for granted. It, it, it's, it's like we undervalue it in a sense. We don't see it as the gift from God that it is. We don't see it as the opportunity to honor the Lord that it is. We think we're owed a certain type of job. We want our jobs to make us feel important. But we also sort of want to escape work. So the fall, the second chapter of this story that gives clarity to work tells us that, that we've distorted. Our view of work and our view of ourselves is, is really warped uh, by sin. Uh, on the one hand, we idolize it. On the other hand, we don't think it's that important when it is in God's eyes. But thank the Lord for the third chapter of that story that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose in our work lives, and that's the chapter of restoration. We have to look at our work through the lens of the gospel. We are new creations. Jesus makes all things new. He's working to restore his creation. And uh, did you know at the end of history, after the final resurrection, when there's the new heaven and new earth, there will be work? Did you know that? We will work. That's going to be part of eternal life is work. Uh, because remember, God created work at the beginning, and he designed us to enjoy it. And when he restores his broken creation, he's going to restore work, too, in our view of work. Um, look at Revelation 22. This is literally the end of the story. Revelation 22, 3 to 5, it's speaking about eternal life, the new heaven and earth. It says, no longer will there be any curse. That's talking about sin. The throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will reign forever and ever. And, and we hear rain and we think like, cool, I'm in charge. I can just like sit back. No, that's language of working. I mean, when he created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden to take care of it, to cultivate it, to work. And that's what's being talked about here. Um, you know, someone once said, I don't know who said it originally, but I've heard various theologians repeat it. Um, Only God could write a story that starts perfect and ends better. And that's what we get in the biblical narrative. And work was part of God's original perfect creation. And it will be part of, his, of eternal life in his restored, better, eternal kingdom. This is the story we must tell ourselves about work. And if we have this mindset, it changes our view of work now. We no longer look to our work for a sense of worth. Because God is the one who tells us how valuable we are. And he gave his life to prove how valuable we are to him. 
Our work is a gift that God gave us, and we can glorify Him in whatever form of work that is. Because we see that our work is part of His care of creation, care of us, and so there's a sense of dignity and worth in all types of work. And if we have that story in mind of restoration, there's a hope there, and we can know that our work lives now, in a sense, point forward to the day when God's going to put everything right the way He wants it. And so our work points forward. You know, if you're a lawyer, you know, one day God's justice will reign over all. You're working for justice now. There will be a day where justice, his justice, perfect justice reigns over all. If you're a teacher, there will be a day when God's truth is known and experienced without question. If you're an accountant or a financial planner, there is a day the riches of Jesus will be experienced without hindrance. No one will want for anything. If you're a police officer, there will be a day with no crime or violence. If you're a doctor, there will be no sickness. If you're a parent or a caretaker, we will live with our Heavenly Father and experience His perfect care on a moment-by-moment basis. If you're in the service industry, entertainment industry, there, and you, you see people experiencing moments of happiness, we will one day live in unbroken joy. If you build homes or you do landscaping or you clean houses, God has a home waiting for us, prepared for us. And we will enjoy that home and care for that perfect heaven and earth that's waiting. If you're an engineer, get ready. You're going to see the most perfectly engineered creation one day and you're going to enjoy it. If you're an administrator, everything will be as it should be. Whatever work it is, whether you're paid for it or not, or maybe you're retired, whatever work you did do, one day God will show us the perfect form of that. We will enjoy it. And you can rest in that, satisfied in that. God gave you work, and it's good, it's honorable, it's part of reflecting who he is. So to view our work properly, we have to place it in that story. That's the only story that makes sense of it and makes sense of who God is and makes sense of who we are. But even if we adopt that mindset, uh, which we're called to do, we're still at risk of our work consuming us if that understanding is not paired with a biblical understanding of rest. Uh, The two go hand in hand. Do you feel, I know I have, like rest is just like a mirage. It's just always out there. You can never quite get there. Um, even with all the days off, all the vacations, there's just this low simmering exhaustion at any given moment. Um, why do you think that is? When God created work, he also created rest right there at the beginning. God did the work of creating the universe, and then he rested. Now, do you think God was physically tired? He was like, oh man, this is, I'm really working up a sweat here. You know, making Saturn really put me over the edge. So I need a little me time. Um, no, he wasn't physically tired, obviously, but he rested. And so that tells us that the purpose of rest, the meaning of rest, Sabbath rest as it's called, um, can't simply be about like fatigue. It, it's about something more than that. Um, and so rest, as God rested and designed it, means more. Uh, and we see a little bit of it here in Genesis 1 and then the first couple verses of chapter 2. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So the picture we're getting here is not that he's just tired. It's he's he's created and he has called it very good. And the rest that he's doing is basically stepping back and enjoying the result of the work he's done. The rest isn't to escape the work, but to be fully satisfied with the work that's been done and enjoy the result of the work. To say, the work is done, I'm content with what was completed. And remember, this is all happening pre-fall when everything is perfect. And everything's perfect. God rested. And so rest is something God has always wanted us to experience. In fact, he commands it. When you get to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, there it is. Keep the Sabbath. Rest in the way that I rested is what he commands us to do. As a reflection of the way God rested, we are called to rest, to find Sabbath in that same way. So why do we always feel tired? Why? Why is there an exhaustion that time off doesn't seem to cure? I think it's because there's two types of work in our life. There's the surface level work, which is what occupies our time, you know, our our work life, uh, which of course does make us physically tired and that, that can stress us out. But there is a deeper level of work that goes on in our hearts and it is the relentless compulsion to prove ourselves to justify our existence, to demonstrate to God, to demonstrate to ourselves, to our peers, that we are doing something meaningful and special and important, which means that we are meaningful, special, and important. And this deeper work is what exhausts us, and that kind of work is never finished. It is never finished. And because of Jesus, we're not supposed to do that type of work anymore. He came to free us from that work. Because you can take all the vacations you want. But if you're never resigning from that deeper level of work, that soul level of work, you will always be exhausted. We are meant, as we work, to be able to step back, as God did, and think, the work I did is good. I'm satisfied with what's been done. I am perfectly loved by Jesus. I have nothing to prove. I'm not defined by my work. My worth isn't in my work. I'm thankful to have the work, but I am not my work. And this is critical for us to understand, especially this deeper level of work, this soul level work, because here's a key biblical idea that I think we really need to get down into our hearts is we don't have a soul. We are a soul that has a body. And so our souls need rest. And the only place our souls find rest is in Christ. And if you don't discover rest in Christ, your life will be a never-ending treadmill of self-assurance and perpetual exhaustion and looking for other people to tell you how important you are. And that work never ends. But it's meant to. I want to look just briefly at a moment when Jesus talked about this. Um, It's in Luke 6. Um, here's what's happening. Jesus and his disciples are walking through these grain fields and they're hungry. So they're just grabbing like chunks of grain off of the, uh, 
I don't know, the wheat or whatever it is. But they're basically munching on grain in the fields. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a power bar in the first century. They're just pulling these <laughs> granola, you know, one piece at a time. And they're just, they're eating it. They're kind of snacking as they go. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and others who were uh, antagonizing Jesus, they saw him doing that and they're like, ah, you broke the rule. It's the Sabbath and you can't reap on the Sabbath. You can't harvest crops. I'm not sure you know, picking up a little grain counts as harvesting, but in their mind it did. You're not supposed to reap on the Sabbath. That's work. You just did work, Jesus. And look at the way he responded to this criticism in Luke 6, 5. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man was Jesus' most common designation for himself. When he was referring to himself, he called himself the Son of Man. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And by saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, you know what Jesus was saying? I'm the Lord of rest. I'm the Lord of rest. Jesus was basically saying to them, to these, uh, you know, by the book, religious leaders, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the Sabbath. It was not meant to rule you. It was made for you so that you can rest and enjoy your work and flourish. And you keep reading this chapter a few verses later. There's another incident about the Sabbath when Jesus is kind of accused of like breaking the Sabbath. And in this case, there was a, a man um, who's described as having a, a shriveled hand. His hand wouldn't function. And um, the religious leaders are like, let's see if Jesus heals this guy. Because according to the religious regulations at that time, it was okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath if it was going to save their life. But if it wasn't like saving their life, you had to wait till the next day. And so they want to see if Jesus is going to do this. And uh, starting in uh, verse 10, we see what he does. He, that's Jesus, looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus was showing them in this moment that in restoring the man's hand, he was actually doing what the Sabbath was created for, restoration. It even says he restored the man's hand. So Jesus was not disrespecting the Sabbath as they were uh, accusing him of doing. He was giving rest to this man from his ailment. This was restorative work that Jesus was doing. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of rest in our lives. Real rest is meant to be restorative. Rest is a gift. We should be able to be content and satisfied with the work we've done, knowing that our standing with God is secure in Christ, and then rest. Enjoy a time of restoration before resuming the work. That's what rest was meant to be. Here's the problem. It's a lot of work to rest. It's hard. There is so much that needs to be done, right? I mean, everything feels urgent. Uh, It never feels like a good time to rest. To rest in the way that God did after creation in a restorative way, it's not simply about unplugging. We can't throttle back that easily. It it takes some deliberate attention um, and self-control to rest in this way. Um, takes effort to quiet everything that's clamoring for our time and energy. So I want to wrap up with just a few uh, practical suggestions about how you can begin to step into 
a life that has rest and, and, and enjoy rest. Um, these aren't the only things. These are just some starting points. Um, so I just want to kind of leave you with uh, some practical points here. The first is this. Realize that God gave you the Sabbath. You have it. It's a, it's a different, it, it's a shift in thinking. It's like, uh, I think sometimes we think of rest as like, well, hopefully one day I can find a way to rest or whatever. But the biblical picture is that God has given you the Sabbath as a gift. And he has said, commanded, keep this, do this, rest in this way. And so we have it, but are we, you know, unwrapping that gift and enjoying it? So it's not something we hope to find one day. We have it. In fact, the very language in the Bible says, keep the Sabbath. Remember it. You have it. So God has given it to us. Are we actually enjoying it? So remember, God gave you the Sabbath. It's, such, it's a shift in thinking. Um, because God wants you to know him as the Lord of rest in your life. You know, he's, he's, he's a lot of things, but one of the dimensions of who God is is he's Lord of rest. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And, and do you know him in that way? He wants us to know him in that way. Second thing, a little more practical, start saying no. Don't think about it. Don't plan on it one day. Start. Start saying no, especially to things you like to do and think are important. It's really easy to say no to things you don't want to do or you think are unimportant. But the things you like and are important are the things that it takes real discipline to say no to or to say no some of the time to um, or scale back. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everything to everyone. Someone else is running the universe. Start saying no. This next one, I think, uh, is really important, and it's going to require some reflection on your part. Uh, But I think to come to a place where you're enjoying rest and really embracing the biblical idea of rest, you have to do this. Extinguish what fuels your spiritual striving and discontent. So, The start saying no thing is more about the surface level work. This is about that deeper level of work, the relentless desire to prove yourself. And you've got to extinguish whatever's fueling that. We're meant to resign from that level of work because Jesus has told us we are infinitely valuable in his eyes. So you need to discover in your life what fuels that, the desire to prove yourself and find your worth outside of Jesus. What's fueling it? And extinguish that. It could be... I don't know, a TV show that you watch and you see a certain lifestyle and you think, gosh, why don't I have that? If God loved me, I would have that. I must not be something special. I don't have all, of, I don't have that lifestyle. Or maybe uh, there, you have a group of acquaintances that, I don't know, after you <laughs> spend time with them, you just feel really dissatisfied with yourself, dissatisfied with your work, discontent, beaten down. Maybe that that group of people fuels that in you. And then I, I think this is one we all should think about is, um, you know, reevaluating our relationship with social media. We need to be careful about social media. We have, as a culture, really embraced this pretty uncritically. And there are some good things that come out of it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's great to stay in touch with family and good friends and 
you share information about things that's going on, but we have to understand one thing about social media. It is a platform that enables and encourages the desire to present yourself to others in a way that makes you feel valuable. And if social media is fueling for you this deeper level work of striving to prove your worth, you might want to reevaluate your relationship with it. Whatever makes you feel that way and fuels that deeper level work, find a way to extinguish it. Uh, another suggestion is rest actively and inactively. Uh, so do some things that are active, that are fun, that are unproductive, uh, unrelated to your job or whatever you typically do uh, with your days. Uh, but then I think inactively too, just if you can, carve out some unstructured time where you're like, I don't know. I'll see what happens tomorrow afternoon. You know, read, take a nap, reflect, talk with a friend. Unplanned, inactive. And then the last one I think is actually the most important uh, with all of this, and it's really the key, is ask Jesus for rest. Go to him. You say, you know, you are the Lord of rest. You've given me rest, and I'm not experiencing it yet, and I want to. I'm created to work. I'm created to rest. I have an unhealthy view of my work. I have a dysfunctional view of rest, and you are the Lord of rest. I want you to help me. And he wants you to enjoy rest in him, real rest for your souls. Look what he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I think he's primarily, he's not talking about like, I'm going to make it so you don't have to have a job anymore. You know, I'm just going to help you out, just give you a pile of cash and you never have to work again. He's talking about that deeper level rest. The weariness of wondering about your standing with God, proving yourself to yourself, proving yourself to your peers. That's the thing Jesus says, I will give you rest from that if you come to me. It is, you are weary and you are burdened by it. But in me, you know who you are, and you know that you are loved, and you're worth everything. Jesus wants to give us rest from this deeper level of work. And we have to rest in Christ's view of our work and our rest. And you can do that knowing that you are loved beyond imagination. Your work, whatever it is, is worthwhile. But you're not worth something because of your worthwhile work. You're worth something because God says you are. And he made you and he loves you and he gave everything for you. And so to understand our work life and rest, we have to put it in the context of that story of creation, fall, and restoration. And restoration comes through Christ. Christ. 